Welcome to AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I am the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So, as everyone knows, if you unless you've been under a rock for the last two months, everyone, everyone is chatting, discussing, talking about and around issues related to racism, anti-blackness, diversity, systemic oppression, sexism, the whole the whole gamut, right? So there have been enormous calls for change globally, nationally, locally, and even within veterinary medicine. So we've seen statements from across the profession on a variety of issues. Some have hit the right tone, some have not hit the right tone, some just are just out there, some some, there are no statements at all. And it seems that everyone has an opinion about what the future of these issues surrounding race in particular are within veterinary medicine. Now, talking about race seems to play out very differently across populations. According to a 2019 Pew study, um, who, how, when, and why we talk about race is really largely influenced by our educational attainment status, our age, our political affiliation, certainly our race. And folks tend to talk about race within their own racial group because it's easier and it's safer, right? But really to affect the type of change that I think folks are calling for and to really truly try to move towards anti-racism and working to end racism, we have to talk across groups, across race, across spectrums about race. And for a lot of folks, that is very terrifying. It's scary, downright scary. And it's scary because what if you make a mistake? What if you don't use the latest vocabulary and the right acronym? What if you're misunderstood? What about, what about if I just really mess up, right? That's the big fear. And when we talk about diversity and inclusion, oftentimes we focus on the impact. And this is, you know, we really kind of minimize the intent. This is one of those times where we actually need to talk about both the intent and the impact. So, Today, my very, very good friend and colleague, Dr. Jen Brandt from AVMA, and I are going to have our own chat about why it's so hard to talk about race and how to get over that fear, right? So, Jen, my pal, welcome. Thank you so much. It's really a privilege to be here. Awesome. So, unless you you know, have also been under that rock, not paying attention to what's been going on these last two months, and you've never heard of Dr. Brandt before... Tell them who you are, Dr. Brandt. Uh, I'm Dr. Jen Brandt, and I'm the Director of Wellbeing, Diversity, and Inclusion Initiatives for the AVMA, and my background is in social work and sociology, looking at impacting change uh, related to a number of issues, including social justice at both the individual level and organizational level. Awesome, awesome. So as we are getting ready to dive in and you get a chance to kind of watch this Fishbowl chat. The chat is open on YouTube. Feel free to drop us a line. I'm monitoring that and and, uh, we'll see if there's any questions that we can dissect (laughs) and talk about. So let's get on into it. Get into the to the to the nitty gritty. Why is it hard? What's so scary about talking about race from your point of view, Jen? Yeah, I think, why would any conversation be hard when you're looking at 400 years of, of systemic oppression and barriers? I, I think for many people, it almost, it, it, for the people who are even willing to have the conversation, which is not everybody, it can then also feel so overwhelming, like, why bother? Why does my voice matter? As you've already mentioned, what if I make a mistake? What's the right way to do it? Where do you go from here? And so I, it feels like conversations that are just fraught with the potential for disaster. And yes. so I think it's a, it's, it's a pretty human instinct to say, I'm, I'll pass. Or maybe I'll have their conversation with myself in my car. 
or with just a trusted friend who looks like like me and has the same background as me. It's much harder, as you say, to really expand those conversations into groups that you don't necessarily always interact with. Just speaking personally, I my friends and I talk about race all the time. Of course, now that probably isn't necessarily normal either, but this is kind of part of what I do for a living, which probably heightens the number you know, of interactions that I have that really kind of focus on this particular topic. But you know, sometimes I have to take a step back and think about the audience that I'm talking to. Um, I think about vocabulary, you know, like there's always these changes in vocabulary, talking about diversity in general, right? But even now, as we're talking about folks of color and some folks have a problem with the term people of color and some folks want to use BIPOC and some folks folks want to use Latinx and some folks. And so, you know, there's potential landmines for kind of how do you get it right? And so it's easy to kind of go into your safe space with folks that you know, where you can all use kind of commonly accepted language, (laughs) which for some of us might be rooted in 1980s, 1990s, early 2000s, early teens, you know, but, but, you know, some of this language is constantly evolving. And one of the challenges of really kind of getting to that cross race discussions is how do you even approach some of the jargon? Because it it really becomes quite jargony to have conversations about race. Do you find that? Yeah, I have a couple thoughts that came to mind as, as you were talking when you say you and your friends talk about race all the time. And like one that probably is certainly a function of what you do for a living, but it's also a function of being a black woman in our society. It's a privilege to not have had to talk about race all the time. So that if you're one of the people who say, well, I've never had to have a conversation, I'd say, look in the mirror, you're likely white. That would be a good clue. And uh, I think it was a couple of years ago now that time has lost almost all meaning. It was like pre-2020, but was at an event you and I were both at. I think it was the Purdue Iverson Dell Symposium. And I really had a just one of those kind of eye-opening epiphany experiences when the speaker had everybody identify what percentage, you were supposed to write down a percentage, what percentage of your life do you believe is impacted by race? And so I immediately thought, well, if he had asked the question, what percentage of your life is impacted by gender? It's a hundred percent. Like, how do you not have a B? And so I, the same answer, a hundred percent of my life is impacted by race. He didn't ask in what way it was impacted, but that was the answer. And so it was interesting in going around the room that there were maybe three people who had said 100%. And then the rest, it was various categories of 75% and 30%. And then again, he talked about how that's a luxury, that we don't recognize that. So I, w- I would just say that speaks to your experience as, as a Black woman growing up in our, in our world. Um, in terms of language, you know, it's interesting. I tell people, like, whatever people will say, well, what term do we use? Like, well, here's what it is today. Right. <laughs> Not being different tomorrow, and that's okay. Um, so to talk in this space, one does really require some attention to that. You know, listen, is that a term that you've heard before? If it isn't a term you've heard before, it's okay to go ahead and look it up. Why are we saying that today? Know that it will change. And on the one hand, of course, that's very important because we know language matters. On the other hand, I don't want anyone, and I know you feel the same, to get so focused on that, that that's the blockade to any conversation. Like if we're going to err, err on the side of potentially using the term that isn't of today, but let's not err on the side of having no dialogue whatsoever. Absolutely. So like, why are people afraid? Why? I mean, I know, but, you know, I think that, you know, I I mean, I, there's a lot of research on this, right? But ultimately, I think that, you know, why are folks afraid to have these conversations? And, you know, I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown. And, you know, I tell everybody that is really kind of starting out thinking about diversity, a nice book to kind of, nice book, but a, an easy way to kind of get into it is that book, Braving, her book, Braving the Wilderness, where she kind of moves from just talking about some of her research on shame, but really kind of 
Like, what does that mean to kind of step out and be brave, right? And so shame, I think, is a lot of what's the, what's driving that fear, right? It's a shame that I don't know what the language is. Shame that I'm going to get dragged on social media. Shame that I am just going to screw up. And then people are going to, like say awful things about me, or I'm going to embody some type of stereotype that is really not a stereotype I want to embody, you know, those kinds of of things. And so, you know, it's, it's remarkable how much shame actually controls our behavior. It is. Yeah. As a fellow social worker, of course, I I love some Brene Brown. But what I really love is that she takes a scientific approach to these concepts and has really dug deep into the whole concept of shame. And to your question, why why are people afraid? I think of all why are why are we afraid of anything? You know, you think of all the reasons. So for people, it could be self-preservation. You know, we are hardwired for connection. And if you think about how we have survived really through the centuries, it's having this tribe that you associate with and rejection from the the tribe literally could mean you died. You could not fend for yourself. And so think about how fundamental, fundamentaling that wiring is and how protective we would be, even if it's not consciously, how protective we would be that we would not want anything jeopardized. So most of us have grown up with the experience of feeling what it was like to be in a group and then not in the group. And so that in-group, out-group sensation, some of us have certainly grown up in an experience of we maybe didn't like the behavior of our in-group, but confronting that is far scarier. It comes with risk of consequences. Like what if that group rejects you and then the other group doesn't, isn't really on board with you've got to offer either. So I think self-preservation, that fear of making a mistake and, and being seen as flawed in some way, which again, really speaks to shame. There's a lot of guilt that people may experience. For many people, it's just just fear alone is just paralyzing. And, you know, we, we can go into the brain science of that in a minute if that's of interest to you, but it literally just shuts us down. And so when we're afraid, we really have kind of some primal things that can happen. You know, there's the fight, there's the flight, there's the freeze. And so I think when it comes to these conversations, what can happen is in some ways we fight. So that might show up as being very defensive. Well, I'm not a racist. I'm not like those people really wanting to distinguish ourselves as different or we freeze entirely and, and say nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that as, as someone who works and advocates, you know, for anti-racism and, and social justice and all of those things. I think that sometimes those of us who operate in that space forget or take for granted that folks either should understand our experience, do understand our experience. Like it is very much, there's a part of us that's almost very much always in fight stage, right? We don't, we don't necessarily flee, but we're just like, it's been 400 years. How do you not know this? Right. And, and someone is just like, okay, but I, I just had an awakening. <laughs> I know it's bad. It took this long, but I'm here. And it's really, it's hard sometimes to demonstrate grace in that moment of saying, okay, you're here now. Let's get you up to speed, (laughs) you know, here's, let's, let's engage. It's, it, it is hard to kind of sometimes set aside what feels like an ongoing conversation when someone new comes in and for them, it's the first, it's not just not an ongoing conversation. It's the first conversation. The stakes end up being very high for that person but there is also this kind of, it is often the more of the fight response than the flight response of, okay, like, can't y'all just get together? <laughs> like, come as a group? Yeah. <laughs> Why is it onesies and twosies, right? Yes. But I mean, yeah, so self-preservation is, you know, it's a, it's a it can be very paralyzing. I think. And in, in today's climate, you know, let's let's talk about, well, what's at stake if you talk about race and you don't quite get it right? Yeah. Well, uh, there's so much to unpack here. I don't know. <laughs> right. My wheels are going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, 
hours. So I, one question I would say, what's at stake if we don't have the conversations, right? People are being murdered on the street. People are being murdered, murdered while they're jogging. So the stakes to me of not speaking up are super high. And when I compare that to the stakes of speaking up and, and having people on social media, not like me, like I'm going to go, I'm going to err on the side of like, could we save some lives here? That also said, even that decision comes with some muscle and some privilege, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some fortitude to take that on. In terms of the learning curve, yes, I would say even for folks who may be new to the race space but aren't new in education, and I would imagine a lot of the folks in your audience, you know, if they're veterinarians or in education, have certainly had to repeat some information over and over. If you're a teacher for a class, a new class comes through and you have to teach some of the same basic concepts again. To a veterinarian, you know, the first time you had to explain a spay-neuter to somebody was probably exciting for you and the other person. The 500th time you've done it, you're like, oh my oh my gosh, could people just read, right? So it's, it's human to want to have people kind of on board with where you are. So there, there's no judgment of that. We're, we're just human. And to have to feel like you're stopping every time the momentum to have somebody else come on board a, I think it's draining at times. It won't be a good fit for everybody all the time. There will be periods where you think I've got this energy, I can do this. And there are other times like some, could somebody else step in and play the educator? So a, a lot of that process is even tuning into what you have the capacity that day. I think a, a social work foundation, like I probably the core value at the root of anything else we do is something that we just call meeting people where they are. Yeah. So it doesn't it doesn't mean that that's where you want them to be or where they ideally will need to be, or it doesn't certainly even speak to the capacity of where they can and will be. It's where they are in this particular moment. And so if in this particular moment, you are having somebody say, I didn't even know race was a thing. And you are aware that that is steeped in enormous privilege and you can feel your frustration rising. That person on that given day is not at that same place you are. And so thinking about your messaging and again, thinking about if you have the capacity to deliver it that day or if somebody else might need to step in and and help with that process. Yeah. Well, I think that, that, you know, there's also this, this issue in, around, you know, in terms of meeting folks where they are and some of the reactions and the fragility and the defensiveness and and all of that. I mean, I think it really does get to, look, I want to have this conversation and that's the first step, right? So when you have a problem, declaring that you have a problem is is step one and you want to engage. I think that the fear and that potential shame, it is very high stakes, especially when we live in a a culture now that moves so quickly, right? Things can spin out so, so quickly. And so I want to talk a little bit about cancel culture. And so, so I'm going to, you know, I think on a previous show, I might've talked a little bit about the, you know, the Cooper case in New York with the bird watcher and Amy Cooper. And there is, for me, no excuse for what she did in that park, right? But let's look at what happened after this, you know, so there was the video that went viral. She lost her dog, at least temporarily. She lost her, you know, she lost her job. She had a really scandalous story in the New York Times about her life. Scandalous. Right. It was basically like, look at her life and look at his life. He's a black nerd and she is not. (laughs) We'll just leave it there. New York Times article, you know, and then there were charges. She was indicted and charges were filed. And, you know, and and the gentleman said, Christian Cooper said, look, I'm not going to participate in this. I think it's kind of gone too far. What happened is absolutely wrong. But I also you know, think that like I, neither of them in that moment could have possibly imagined how, what, how big of a story it became and what the fallout for her should have been. Now, for me, this is not a, a, you know, necessarily a, a pro or con or defense or whatever of what happened to her, but just really an example of what cancel culture can look like you know, kind of in real time. And, and for a lot of folks, they see that story and they go back in their shell. <laughs> yes. yes. 
True. Right. So, you know, like how, you know, what do you think about cancel culture now? And, and should it, should it be a thing? <laughs> what well, do you think, Jen? <laughs> if you were a client in my office, you, like, I don't ever think of anything as shoulds. Right. Uh, right. So it, we know it can be a thing. So I would say cancel culture just fascinates me from a human behavior perspective, from a brain science perspective, and really in an outcome perspective. So one, when I think about cancel culture, I think one, there's a common cognitive distortion that probably everybody on the planet has. I certainly have at times. So this is no judgment on our mental health, but it's called black and, black and white thinking or splitting. And so it's this, it's this inability to carry two thoughts. Right. So we have to align with one or the other. And we really see that manifested, certainly in U.S. politics. It's my way of the highway kind of thing. And so I think on the one hand, if we're setting boundaries about behavior that harms us, on the one hand, being able to set that firm boundary could be a good thing and something that somebody has worked for for a long time to really, what I say, stand in your truth, remain centered. On the other hand, you you want to have some nuance in there and you want to have some ability to calibrate because if everybody that harms you is just canceled, that doesn't move the needle either. It really just case, creates bigger gaps and, and it doesn't really call on us to do some heavier lifting together to bring about solutions. But I was also say that that is part born from the fact that as, as a culture, as a country, Folks who look like me, white men and women, have not built up uh, any, I'd say not a bunch, but not any social capital to have to be given the benefit of the doubt. And we've been trusted time and time again and haven't delivered. And so all of that plays into it as well. So I, I would say in an ideal world, we would save the cancel culture for just when that is the only weapon, really, I think of it as a weapon that that is the most effective in that situation, but I, I would say we probably need to pick and choose our moments. I would also say it's interesting from a human behavior side when um, when we look at human behaviors that we consider violent against other people, people will certainly think of, well, if you punch somebody or if you shoot somebody, that's violent, right? We agree on that. But one of the behaviors that actually is is most emotionally violent that we don't think about is the silent treatment. You are literally saying, I don't see, I reject you. I, it, like you don't even matter enough. And so there's a cruelty that comes along with cancel culture that again, sometimes that is the appropriate tool to use, but not necessarily as often as I see it happening and not always in the context that I yeah. see it. Happening. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, cancel culture, I believe that there are situations that folks shouldn't come back from. <laughs> just like they just shouldn't, right? And I mean, we can name like lots of those things, right? You know, they're they're just things that that folks probably shouldn't necessarily come back from. But that is because there is a history, a legacy of behavior that really, yeah, okay, we've practiced a little grace and we practiced a little more. Okay, we're still doing this? No, you gotta go, <laughs> right? And so, but we are in a time where it is very, that is a kind of almost a knee jerk reaction. Right. And so that's also how fight is manifesting itself in that fight or flight kind of thing. You know, folks are being doxxed and dragged and I mean, social media can get really, really ugly. And, you know, it's really funny. Call me naive. I don't hang out. I do have a LinkedIn profile. I'm not on LinkedIn that much, but you know, my sister is a LinkedIn kind of junkie. And I had no idea that people were getting salty and dragging each other on LinkedIn. Like I had no, like after she told me it made sense, but it didn't even occur to me <laughs> that that was like, that there was some kind of cancer culture dragging phenomenon happening on LinkedIn. Right. And so technology and these platforms have made it really easy to push back, but there's also, you know, there's pushing back and then there's pushing over the edge. And I and I do wonder what is that long term effect of silencing and turning the back? And, and um, certainly, yeah, there are situations where we're just like, you know, throw away the key. But but, 
you know, generally speaking, cancel culture is really, is, can be really scary, (laughs) you know, and you just don't know when, when you're going to post something. It's like when we tell people, write that like mean email that you want to write back in Word or if you're going to write it in Outlook, like then hit backspace, 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 right? Because you're just not sure how it's going to land. And I imagine that for folks talking about race or any other issue that they're not necessarily a community that they may not be a part of or something that they're just not really sure about, there's that fear of like, am I going to get it wrong? And what is at stake if if I fail? Yeah. Yeah, I, I can think of a few uh, recent incidents that come to mind, that very fresh to mind about this whole concept. Yeah, I think uh, one, and I wish I had the statistics handy, I don't, but I, I've done some presentations on culture of civility in the workplace. And how really since I've looked at studies from 2010 to the most recent one, I think the publication was like 2019. So just not this year. So it'll be interesting to see what happens after 2020. but at least in the U.S., there's a consistent finding of the rates of incivility that they have not escalated hugely over that nine-year period. They have gone up since 2016. So when we look at what was going on in our world in 2016 to now, but the rate of incidents for that happening online is going up exponentially. So, you know, we, we, know, we know the term keyboard warrior, that it's really easy to just douse somebody when you're on, uh, on a keyboard, when you're not having to see them, when you don't literally see almost the physical hit that it takes, that a person who may have misspoke, we may assume the worst about them because they have a word that we didn't like or a phrase that we like, but we have really no idea what they intended behind that. We don't know who they are as a people or a person or what they represent. So again, I think, again, it's not about not holding people accountable. I think we can hold people accountable without shaming people. I think we can hold people accountable without being cruel, without piling on. I'd love to see much more dialogue of the picking up the phone or the sending the direct note and just say, hey, this landed differently with me than you may have intended. I'd like to speak about that with you because as a, as a path forward, as a people, you know, as a nation, those are going to be critical skills that we have to have on uh, on board. And again, it's not to say that it's sometimes things don't elevate to the level of I'm done with you, that it's a pattern of behavior. It's apologizing, but not following through or not bothering to apologize at all or showing that you're getting uh, pleasure in having me be harmed. Those are deal breakers and we don't need to tolerate that. But that really doesn't account for the vast majority of the errors that humans make and so like there like there has to be some place we come together to heal to grow together to to together identify where do we want to go from here and what do we want that to look like yeah yeah so you know you mentioned two things um that i want to talk about essentially you're talking about giving feedback and then the apology right so let's talk about the feedback piece and so this is this is a a challenge because i don't want viewers or listeners of this show to get the impression that either of us are saying, hello, BIPOC folks, Black, Indigenous, people of color, please show grace for these fragile (laughs) fragile folks as they approach you with what is this word and how is that, right? I I don't want to give the impression that there is an urging of taking on more emotional labor. So let me be very, very clear about that. However, if the if the data like the Pew report says that most folks are having these conversations in group, right, then hopefully somebody that you're talking to and those folks in your community, in your group, the folks that look like you, the folks that you kind of share identity with, hopefully there's somebody in that group who you know, has maybe stretched a bit and really kind of grown in this space and has some skills to offer feedback. So let's talk about like, what would that feedback look like, right? And some of it is going to be that fight or flight, but assuming it's neither and our lids, our little brain lid didn't flip, right? What should feedback look like? 
Yeah, keeping that cortex online, right? Cortex online. So you know me well enough to know that feedback has just been a passion of mine. Uh, in and of itself, it's a good skill, but because I see it as so foundational to almost anything else we'll do, I don't know how we have a healthy, thriving, robust culture or workplace if we don't have an environment where we can speak to each other. And that said, there really are some strategies for doing that. So the technique that I've learned, and I like, I can already see people who went uh, took classes for me, like, we know what she's going to say. WWEBY, what worked well, what would make it even better yet? So many of us have not received any feedback, or when we received it, it was called feedback, but it was really abuse, mm. right? Like feedback is not, you're an idiot, I don't like you. Feedback really comes from a place of, I want good things for us, I want good things for this relationship, I want us to grow and evolve. So already there needs to be a little social trust capital that has been built up. And then it's really focusing on the behavior that you're seeing, not the qualities of the person. So like you must be racist because you said X, Y, Z. No, it's I heard you say this term, lazy, whatever the term might be. Uh, the, you know, the intention of that may have been to be helpful. The impact is that it was hurtful. I would feel more comfortable if it was framed this way. So there's a solution that's a part of it. So it's the what what worked well, what would make it even better yet. And most people say once they learn that framework, it's not that giving feedback is easy because there may always be a level of discomfort about it, but it becomes easier because it's clear it's not about the person, it's about the behavior. And I would say part of that is also, I tell leaders when I've done consulting and practices, this is not about putting this for everyone else to do right now. This is about you learning how to receive it very greatly. And um, I tell people, you know, feedback is not the absolute truth. It is simple. It's, it's how you've been perceived. And so whether or not you agree with that, it's still important to know. And somebody has had the courage to come up and give feedback, even if it may be flawed in the way that they do that. And so the ability to just say, thank you, or I appreciate you taking the time, even in, even if inside you just want to scream and defend yourself, I'm going to encourage you not to because right there you're earning some trust capital. That's the modeling that a team or an organization can use to take that same skill set going forward. And also know that, yeah, a lot of times that feedback may not come immediately, right? It's, it's <laughs> you know, the when you're getting hostile feedback it's probably you know that is it certainly is feedback information but that's a reaction right and it's not necessarily a constructive feedback and but you know it might be a couple of days and before you get that email or a phone call or whatever it is it says hey that didn't that did not land okay that was not okay and I need to talk to you about that here's you know, how it made me feel. This is, you know, this is, this is how that played. I'm not sure you're aware of how that played out because oftentimes folks don't know (laughs) how it played out. Right. And if they did know, maybe they wouldn't have done it that way. Right. So, so there's all these assumptions that I think we have when we're in that emotional moment. I know for me, I am in my head a lot. And so I spend a lot of time replaying like, you know, things that I've experienced on the job and and thinking about, well, did that go the way that I wanted to? What would feedback look like for me to receive on that? What kind of critical, you know, let me not overly, but, but, you know, how can I do that better so that I get it to land exactly the way that I want next time? Or can I offer feedback next time? um, Because I want this person to win. Right. And I tell people a lot that some of my frustrations these last kind of couple of months have been, look, I really want people to win. Like I need everybody to get this diversity thing right. (laughs) I want you to win. Like I'm not like sometimes it might sound like I'm beating you up. No, I want you to win. (laughs) Like think of me as the crazy soccer mom on the side of, (laughs) of the field. Go, Johnny, go. Like I just need you to win. Right. Keep kicking. But how that happens in the moment probably sounds like one of those air quote soccer mom stereotypes that we, you know, <laughs> we demonize on, 
follow on social media? <laughs> a couple things come to mind. One is just, and, and people will have heard these sayings. I certainly didn't invent them, but you know, that we tend to ju- judge others by their impact and us on our intent. Yeah. And it's, if we can keep that in mind, one thing that I try to just remember every day is that very few people statistically, and those to, those statistically do probably have a diagnosis code. Very few people wake up at the beginning of the day and say, I just want to wreak havoc right on the planet. I want to create a trail of misery everywhere I go. Like we, we don't like we're really, yeah. really, most of us are waking up just doing the very best we can with some incredible blind spots, Ooh. some that harm other people, not intentionally doesn't erase the harm by any stretch of the imagination. So many of us don't know. And some of us are engaging in behaviors that we learned as a survival skill that did serve a purpose. It, it was essential. It's just like, wow, now in the workplace, it's not playing out very well anymore. And so I think for the, the people who have the courage to speak up, again, from a place of, I want us to win. I want good things for us. And then really couching it in the behavior when it's seen as an, a personal attack. So I say, like, avoid the adjectives. If it's that, if it's you're always and you're never and you're really this, you're mean, you're lazy, you're whatever, those are adjectives. Stay away from those. Like, what did you physically see that you, that a video camera could capture? I heard you say a word. I saw a facial expression that was this. Now, you don't know what the facial expression necessarily means, but you saw it. Or I saw you pointing your finger in my face and it was about an inch from it. And how I felt was, when we're first learning those skills, they feel so incredibly awkward and painful. People will be like, well, I just don't talk like this at all. Like, I I know if we did, this would be a really easy thing to do. We don't. It is a skill, though, that we can learn, that we can be really mindful of. And in terms of giving effective feedback, we generally say it is best to have it within a smaller window, let's say 24 to 48 hours, because otherwise the person will be like, I have no idea what you're even talking about. But also very important, like it doesn't need to be in that five minutes, but particularly if you have a strong emotional response to it, much better to take your own time out. Um, I try to tell for my own self, when I feel it, when I'm feeling a really intense emotional response, I just give my, there's a rule that I need to wait 24 hours, whatever it is. And I find that often I couldn't give you a statistic, but let's say a good percentage of the time after 24 hours, I really realize it was my response. It was me. And there isn't anything to give feedback about other than, okay, Brant, what did you learn from that? What can you do differently going forward? Sometimes, though, it it is appropriate to follow up with the person and say, could we have a dialogue about that? And yes, it's uncomfortable. And yes, it's necessary. Yeah. And the time frame is is important, especially as we are in the midst. I mean, this is we're filming this in in 2020, (laughs) the year of the pandemic and many other horrible things. Right. And time is just weird. Right. So what might have been 28 to 48 hours before might be like 12 to 24 hours now, because. Seriously, I hardly remember what I what happened yesterday morning. Like, I, I really just don't know what happened yesterday morning. Yeah. And so our capacity in many ways has shrunk during this time. So really be mindful about that as well. So, so I want to talk a little bit about apologies. So one thing that Jen and I have vaguely tiptoed around, and yes, I will likely probably do some type of exploration around the issues related to the fiasco between representatives Ted Yoho and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? And so a thing happened. We're not going to get into the thing on this show. A thing happened. And there was initially an apology. Kind of. We know, right? So apologies should sound like I am sorry for the thing I did. Mm-hmm. or said, right? And the way it made you feel, right? It is not, an apology is not, I am sorry for you. <laughs> like, I'm sorry that you were offended by the thing I said, air quote, you know, that was offensive, <laughs> like, right? Like, right? And so one of them takes ownership of the action that was done or said, right? The thing that was said. The other puts all of the onus on the person who received, it was the the recipient of the words, the deeds, all of that. 
and how they interpreted it. And, and again, we often talk about intent versus impact. Saying you're sorry does not necessarily, like you can be sorry and not have meant it. <laughs> well, yeah. Like, I mean, not have meant doing the original thing that you need to apologize for. Like those things happen a lot. And there are things in our everyday life that we apologize for. Like, oh man, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, you know, when I eat the last wing with my daughter, uh, I thought you were going to, you know, she ate, well, a couple of weeks ago, she, I'll tell everybody, a couple of weeks ago, we had leftover pizza. I was like dreaming about this leftover pizza. I get up the next morning, pizza is gone. And she was like, oh, my bad. I'm sorry. I didn't know you were going to eat the pizza. It wasn't her intent to withhold pizza from me. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> it's gone. Gone. <laughs> It is gone. The impact is Lisa did not get leftover cold pizza, right? Yeah. The same thing is, I mean, so it happens in our everyday life, but on these kinds of issues, we often see the non-apology apology more often. And, you know, I think that we've, we've talked about how fear and shame and, and being kind of cast out are at the root of, of why some folks don't have these things and that the stakes are high, cancel culture, all those things, fear of feedback. But ultimately, you got to stand in your stuff. Like, say you're sorry. It only takes a minute and move on. <laughs> but not, not everybody has learned that. Not everybody has been socialized in that. And I would say this is another topic that my nerd, my nerd self could just go on for days as I've studied apologies, the, the art, the science of apology and, and not a, not an effort I'm directly affiliated yeah. with, but there's something called sorry works. That's a whole uh, movement that addresses apo- the role of apology in healthcare systems and how ultimately it saves you an enormous amount of money in terms of losses because people are just wanting an honest, open accounting of the harm that you own it and then where you go for but like that's an aside so i would say many people fundamentally have not learned the the art and science of an apology you know certainly when you look at differences in gender you know you'll see women and i can't i couldn't tell you what the ratio is i have to look that back up again but women apologize you know if somebody bumps into them on the sidewalk I'm watching a lot of that play out in terms of gender roles in a, in a pandemic, how many times I have to ex- exit the sidewalk for a, a man. And then I'll catch myself wanting to say apology. Like, well, like we're, we both have access to the sidewalk. I'm the one deviating from the path. And then I'm the one apologizing. Like, so I just like, oh, that's interesting to me. And, and absolutely. So if you find yourself saying the words, I'm sorry, but stop it. It's already not going to go well for you. It's not landing. There's no, but. There can be an I'm sorry and this is how I'm going to do differently. I'm sorry and I'm aware of how much this has hurt you. Also, as you've already mentioned, and man, is this popular, but the I'm sorry you were offended by it is definitely not an apology. I'm sorry I was offensive could be an apology. I'm sorry I said something offensive and I will endeavor not to do that again. That's an apology. So, again, that would be a great human skill if we could all learn it, it it is hard because in that moment we can feel tremendous guilt and shame emotionally we're going to want to offload that there's there's a whole set of skills that goes with um, something we just call distress tolerance so you need to have a level of distress tolerance muscle in order to really sit in an apology because the person may not accept it they're not obligated to they may say, that's great, you needed to apologize and it doesn't fix anything. And then you need to still sit with that, right? You don't necessarily get a sense of relief even when you do the apology. So there, there's a whole lot to that. Uh, but but I would say what we got to see play out in the, in the media related to that apology was certainly a master class in, in don't, don't do it that way. Don't do it that way. Or like, yeah, don't do that. I mean, I think that, yeah, and, and apologizing with no expectation of, of absolution, you know, just really just apologize because it's the right thing to do and own and stand in your stuff, right? And so, so there's that. So, all right, we're going to assume good intent. Everybody who's listening and everybody who will listen and watch, good intent. Y'all are really great, 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 great folks, right? And we know that you want to do the right thing whatever the right thing is, and in this case, you know, talking about race. So how do we start? Where does this start? 
And yeah, where do we start? And what are some of the kind of hidden assumptions that we come to this moment? I think it can depend on what our role is and what our experience in the space is. I say for a white ally, where I have to start is really ongoing self-reflection. So like, I, that's not the stopping point, but that's kind of the starting point and the ever-present thread. That There's never a ceiling to this. I will never have mastered it all. I will never have it all right. I just have to accept that. I, will, I accept that it will likely continue to feel really uncomfortable and unpleasant. I'm committed to doing it anyway because it is the right thing as a as a people to do. It's the right thing as an individual to do. I think getting feedback uh, from people, but and I don't mean randomly calling a black person that you never have any other contact with and saying, "Could you make sure this is okay and safe for me to put out?" Like, don't don't slide do into their DMs today. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> um, Please, right? Like, so it may be testing some messaging out if you want to make a, a statement on social media or something, and then being willing to get some criticism about that. And I'd say, you know, stay, stay strong, stay true. If if your if your motive is truly about social change, then it becomes less about do people like me and do they approve. And let me tell you, as a human. I want people to like me and approve of what I do. It is excruciatingly painful on a personal and public level when people don't aren't approving what you do. So I just like, why am I doing it? What's my purpose here? I've always said my purpose on the planet is to leave the place a little bit better than when I found it. And, and that really honestly has nothing to do with whether people liked me or not. Yeah. So it takes some kind of grown-up muscle to stay in that space because sometimes that's really painful. But where do I want to go? For me, it's, it is about education. For me, it is about intentionally where appropriate being in places or spaces that I wouldn't traditionally. So listening to Black voices, listening to Black authors, listening to Indigenous authors, making sure that in my array of books that I read, there's a representation, you know, throughout the authors and the perspectives and the stories, really being mindful of the stories that I amplify on social media. And by the way, these are tiny steps, right? I'm, I'm not saying that any of these is going to change the planet. They're just a series of steps that as an ally I have put together and then and just and continuing to listen a lot and continuing to get feedback about how I can evolve. Yeah, yeah. You know, some advice that I give people is for those folks that you have built trust with, you know, treasure that trust. And, and those are some of your go-to folks to say, hey, can I bounce something off of you? I need that safe space. I need that place. I think that the other thing I want to, to mention, and this is something, you know, I, folks, folks will say, you know, I'm an expert. No, I know what I know, <laughs> but I am constantly learning. It is enormous to kind of keep up with all of the different sectors of, of diversity things that I, that I cover. And I am very much, I consider myself very much a novice in a lot of these in-depth things. And so I need people to really understand that even folks like me, who am immersed in this work, who live in this skin and this body, like I don't always get it. And I need folks, other folks who look like me or, you know, have shared experiences like me, not just black and brown folks, but other marginalized identities as well. Don't think that we all have a lock on how to do this because we don't. It is a constant learning progression for us also. The, the, the dynamics of what that looks like may look different. Our capacity um, to kind of reframe that may sometimes be different as well, but it is, we're all on this journey. Sometimes we're on parallel paths, sometimes we intersect. But, you know, I, I often have to tell, you know, folks of color, like, hey, don't assume that you got this on lock. You know what you know in this moment. Hmm. There's something new to learn tomorrow about this. And, you know, for me, I, you know, if you follow me on, on social media, I am very quick to say, hmm, here's a problem. Friendly white allies, come get your people. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, because I trust my allies and I'm not going to always step in to do that emotional labor. But clearly something needs to be said or done. <laughs> so this is a, you know, like, you know, call a friend 
tag a backup, you know, find someone who can help. Cause there are enormous amount of things that I think slide across my desk in my email, in my DMS. And I'm like, hmm, that is an issue. And then I let the uncomfortable silence hang. <laughs> yes, you do. And then I'm like, maybe somebody else can deal with that. Hello, friendly allies. Can you come get that? Right. And I expect, you know, those folks for whom I'm an ally to, to also tag me. That is what the role of the ally is. Right. To kind of step in, in those moments. And so, and that also, I think, you know, should help kind of mitigate some of that fear. Right. Have some folks that you in your life that you can use as that touchstone and that you can use to say, hey, I need I need backup. I need backup to like I'm not using the right language. I'm not making headway. I'm not like we're talking like parallel, but not, you know, in the same place. And so really, you know, this requires practice. And so if the Pew Report is right and we spend a lot more time talking in group about that. Then, then really start thinking very creatively about the diversity even within your group and how we offer feedback. Get that practice in that space. Get that practice in that space. So I'm laughing a bit because I, I know how many times I've got, gotten the call from Dr. Lisa Greenhill, Jen, you need to gather your people. So I'm laughing. I'm laughing because I love you and I appreciate because it's so true in that moment. Like, there needs to be a gathering, there needs to be some accountability. And that I think traditionally, we've just expected that black, brown and indigenous people will just somehow magically continue to do all that work. And and no, like, I can assure people who are listening, that if we were capable of that magic, we would just fix this problem. Yeah. And a lot of times when people said, going back to the very beginning, when we say who talks about race, the reality is that race is a white issue, right? It's one, it's a constructed identity anyway, one that we've given enormous differentials in power and opportunity and oppression. And so the the people who have to be central in addressing that are the people who have created that. So I, I, I still laugh about Jen, the gather your people. And I think yeah. people who don't necessarily know you personally, you you usually have 10 books you're juggling at one time like is and then you refer them to me and so I'll be like well this is the one I've got going on my walk and this is the the one I read when I get home and like you know I got like I really I literally have three or four books going at this point because as you there's no ceiling yeah there's something to learn I think even you and I have talked about simply because you're a black veterinarian doesn't make you an expert on the DNI space. You know your information, but that doesn't necessarily translate into you know how to set clear outcomes and organizational objectives and what really is a, a path forward. I, I think that comes from a lot of group and a, and a lot of input. Yeah, yeah. So use those allies. So our call to action, and let's kind of wrap up with leave the people some thought-provoking questions. <laughs> so what's the call to action, Jen? Again, I think it kind of depends on what, what your goals are. I, I'm a big believer in if the first if your first call for action hasn't been any meaningful self-assessment, start there. So there are uh, tools on um, cultural, we didn't go into this, this could be a whole other show, but cultural competence and cultural humility. And cultural competence really shortly is just the skills involved in having these um, conversations. Humility goes much deeper. It transcends that. It's a lifelong process. There are tools. We should have some, I think, on avma.org forward slash diversity now, just as a starting point to have a wake-up call. And then it might be, I'm going to engage in a conversation with someone. Maybe it's a trusted person that you just start off with. But if you don't start saying the words like black, like brown, like race, like oppression, like racism. If we don't even practice saying the words, the conversations are not going to get any simpler. And then also taking an honest assessment. Who's in my circle? Does everybody look and sound and have the same background as I do? If not, if, if they do, what can I do to change that? And again, a low risk way to change that might be, can you follow some different people on social media? Can you read books from different authors? That's a low risk. A higher risk will be engaging in real authentic people who don't look and sound like you. So those would just be some basic starting points. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
yeah, I mean, and practice, you know, sometimes you just gotta, you, you have to practice, right? You can practice with your friend group, you can practice with your allies. And, you know, there's always something where I, I so again, another Lisa story. So this weekend I was watching, um, you know, uh, Arranged Marriage on Netflix, right? And I was like, let me, like, I have several, um, you know, Indian friends, it was like the, 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 my, I have conditioned myself that I'm like, oh, I have questions. Do, 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 do. I know this is totally inappropriate, but the only reason I didn't do it was because it was a weekend and I didn't want to bother them. <laughs> but please know that there's like an email headed to their box. But part of it is because I'm curious and I want to know. And I, and those folks and I have broken a relationship where it is safe for me to ask questions and not be afraid that the the language that I might use is not quite right, right? Because six episodes of, or six or eight episodes of a Netflix show, it's not going to get the lingo totally straight for me, right? No. It's not. But I have questions because I'm curious and I want to know and I want some frameworks so that when I see this again, I'm not an idiot publicly, right? <laughs> right? And so, you know, challenging yourself to um, really, you know, really value your friendships if you have those intercultural, interracial relationships. If you don't, you might need to do some additional work to cultivate those kinds of relationships and those kinds of experiences. It might mean that part of that fear is not necessarily having an immediate conversation, but it might mean, gee, you might need to go to, say, if you're in D.C., you might need to, instead of going to the movies out in, like, you know, Fairfax, maybe you're going to go all the way into the city and have a movie experience in Chinatown. I guarantee you it will be a different movie experience, right? So so those are some kinds of, of things that, you know, I think that folks just need to step out and be a bit brave. Be a bit brave. Yeah. Yeah, I maybe I know we call this kind of a feel the fear and do it anyway, but some sometimes that really does require this sense of courage, not that we have removed the fear, just that you commit to doing it anyway. And I'd also say that your ability to do that with your friend is because you have built up social capital, right? It is appropriate that you did that because you have earned the trust to randomly call up a person that you might have gone to school with 20 years ago who you have lost track with, like, and hey, can you represent the voices of all brown people in this right. conversation? That's also a wrong assumption. They can bring you their perspective, but you know, no group is a monolith. No one person speaks for the entire group. So but uh, it would be a, a moment of awareness to realize I have no one to call that represents that. Good, good insight. Now, what can you do to cultivate some meaningful relationships? Yeah. So any reflection questions for you from you, Dr. Brandt, to the good people out there? I would say, what what do you commit to? You know, what's what's one nugget you took from today or any other, other, other things that you are hopefully learning in this space? And what's one action that you commit to? What will you hold yourself accountable to? So that would be a starting point. So, yeah. And so mine will be really in self, doing some self-interrogation about your fear. Really, really take some time to, to you know, take the fear out, <laughs> flip it over, turn it around, crack it open, and really kind of try to interrogate and, and investigate what is really at the root of it. Why, why and what is the barrier that's keeping you from having meaningful conversations about things that are so important and that shape the lives of, of the folks around you, your, your friends, your family, and your colleagues. So, yes, we are filming live. But I will say to that, too, is we know one of the strategies for doing that is just to name the fear. And that will seem overly simplified. But our brain does well when we can when we can put a category on it. So this is not about not feeling afraid. It is saying I'm terrified of doing this. I am really afraid. And we may not even know why. We might even just say what because I, I just am. I am afraid. So one, we already know that kind of calms the amygdala allows your brain to stay a little more integrated to take a next step. And then from there, you can say, what's the smallest baby step I will take forward? 
again, we may not ever know the deep root of why, although we can explore that, but what's the smallest baby step I can take forward? Maybe it's phone a friend. Maybe it's look up a definition so that we're comfortable with the word. Um, So it's okay to just say, I really feel afraid and I commit to being part of a solution anyway. Absolutely. That is great. So if you have made, if you're you're thinking about this call to action, you're listening or watching the show and you have made your commitment to yourself on what that little baby step is going to be and you're willing to share it, please drop it in the comments on the Facebook page under this post. And we'd love to hear what you are going to do to bridge that, that gap. We know that this is a scary topic, but we also know that that uh, you all are very smart people. Do it anyway. <laughs> Do it anyway. Face the fear. Like if you can get on a roller coaster, if you can go to vet school, if you can survive second year or third year at What? like you can do this. Like you can do, like I promise you, you can do this. So yes. Thanks, Jen. My pleasure. I'm glad we could have this conversation today. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. So I'm shocked that we managed to do that in an hour. Um, we were. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> so this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. To Jen, my dear, dear friend and colleague, thank you so much for being on the show. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app. We're on all of them. And be sure to like our Facebook page where I post lots of goodies about diversity and inclusion across higher ed, across the workforce and and veterinary medicine. It's AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. So until next time, thanks for listening. 